Welcome to The Better Build, a podcast that explores the world of software engineering leadership and the people who are shaping it. Let's get to the episode. Steph, did you want to do intro or you want me to go for it? Cool. So welcome everyone to another episode of The Better Build, where we chat with senior tech leaders from the startup community and tech community. Super excited today to have with us Martin Kess. Martin's head of engineering at Fractal. Started off as a Waterloo undergrad, did his master's at Georgia Tech, and a couple of years Google, a couple of years at Lyft, and now is leading engineering at Fractal. For those of you that don't know, Fractal is a venture studio that launches vertical B2B SaaS companies. And from what I saw on LinkedIn, maybe it's a little bit out of date, but it says that you launch 145 startups to date. So it's a lot of companies. Welcome, Martin. Would love to hear a little bit more about your story and maybe you can tell us a little bit more about Fractal. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for having me on this. This is exciting. Like you said, we're a vertical B2B SaaS incubator accelerator studio. And our model is very different than the traditional VC model. We have a research team that finds these opportunities in vertical SaaS right now. And these are niche industries that we think are sneaky big. They're billion dollar, of course, early stage startups, nothing guaranteed, but we believe there's billion dollar outcomes for these companies. Really replacing all the Excel spreadsheets and bad software that people are using. One example, we launched a company that does scrap and metal recycling yards. The people that take the concrete and process it, recycle it. Huge industry, terrible software. And so our goal is to find these opportunities and launch great software and replace all the bad software in the world. We've launched over 140 for sure. So our research team finds these opportunities, right? Where's there a vertical need that's sneaky big, has uh, a really good opportunity for a venture scale outcome. We have a recruiting org that finds founders trying to find a technical and a non-technical founder, right? Like so basically someone to build it and someone to sell it. Although as you guys know, as founders, the dividing line is never so clear. And then we uh, fund them. We fund them with a million dollars of pre-seed money to go from research report, couple of co-founders, through to hiring a team, acquiring your first customers, figuring out what that early product market fit looks like, and then scaling it up from there and raising subsequent rounds. Several dozen of our companies have gone on to raise successive rounds on the market, which is pretty exciting. It's like early days for us, right? Like our oldest company, I don't even think they're three years old yet, but so far so good. Amazing. I love how you guys are tackling these industries that typically would be ignored by tech or startup entrepreneurs. There's massive opportunities out there that a lot of people who have a tech background probably aren't exposed to. These kind of unsexy industries, it's really great to see what you guys have built. I'm curious, you talked about recruiting CTOs to lead these companies. Can you talk a little bit about what factors or what attributes you're looking for in a founding CTO? Yeah, I'll separate this into two things. What are the skills that make a good founder? And one of the things we've seen very loud and clear is that's pretty much universal across CTOs, CEOs. There's the grit, ability to you know respond well to adversity, right? There are endless setbacks and people who are able to, you know, roll with that willingness to learn new things and get good at new things really quickly, especially high growth management. You can imagine a, a CTO is just them for a while, and then it's three or four engineers. And then very quickly, you're hiring your first engineering manager and you go from having never managed before, possibly. Some of our founders, of course, have management backgrounds. Over the span of a few years, managing a team of 50, that's a wild growth trajectory, presumably with like middle management and things like that. But there's also just a lot of stuff where some of the stuff for our CTOs is going to be, hey, write code, build stuff, stuff that they've done before. And some of the stuff is going to be like, we just both need to be traveling and visiting customers, onboarding people like that. So I think pretty universally, it's the grit, resolve, ability to roll with the punches, I think has been core. In terms of technical skills, 
probably the number one thing that we're looking for is the ability to attract a really high quality team of engineers. And what high quality means is going to mean different things to people. A small group of people who can ship, who can solve undefined, weird, messy problems. So we're looking for people who've worked at impressive companies, have done impressive things in their career, and then just have that drive to take the driver's seat, I guess, or be in the driver's seat for these companies. And maybe to be a little bit more specific, there's always exceptions. We don't say we only want people who worked at Google for four years or whatever it is. But typically, the sweet spot's been those senior staff engineers at top startups, maybe a bit of management experience, but we've been biased somewhat away from the manager who's been managing for 10 years. They're awesome, but they're not the beginning. It's just, you got to make this thing happen. And there's not necessarily enough management responsibility early on to warrant being a full-time people manager, but just people have led projects who have worked on really, really cool stuff and then just are open to leveling up. I'm curious. So you've invested and worked with a lot of CTOs. Have you seen any patterns starting to emerge in terms of working with repeat founders or new founders? Are the repeat founders more successful or is there no correlation? It seems like both. I would say most of our founders, I don't know the exact percentage, but most of our founders are first-time founders. I think the repeat founders are noticeably grittier, right? They've gone through the challenges before, right? They have seen successes and failures and setbacks and all that kind of stuff. And then not only have they learned how to deal with that stuff, but they've jumped back into the arena. They've gone through it all and been like, hey, I want to get on that ride again. For sure, there's been that. I think there's always the challenge that if you're in a different market than you were in before, a lot of our repeat founders, at least the ones that jumped to my mind, it's not necessarily vertical SaaS repeat founders. And so if you're in a consumer space or in a more fintech space, a lot of the lessons apply. Hire great people, understand your customers, deliver value, all that kind of stuff. But some of the playbook things around like outbound sales that we focus a lot on are new learnings for them. I definitely think that, you know, the repeat founders know what they're getting into. There's definitely this level of I'm going in eyes open. And I think for the first time founders, there's a lot of, whoa, this is intense. It's a different kind of experience. And thinking, especially on the CTO side, on the CEO side, I'm sure similar differences, but on the CTO side, definitely see that. Just have a question for you. So I want to jump back on the, the way you're sourcing and vetting those uh, technical co-founder. I'm pretty sure most of the CEOs who are listening to us right now and who are looking for a technical co-founder would like to have some sort of frameworks, recipe on how to hire their first CTO, right? Because we all know that the CTO you want uh, day one, it might not be the same CTO you want after five years. So if I'm not wrong on this, what you are saying is that you found a sweet spot with staff engineers in mature startup because they are both the tech skills, the art skills, and they are still willing to code and get their hands dirty, but they also have enough management expertise so that they can grow with the company. Yeah, exactly. And even if the founders haven't, and a good chunk of our CTOs have prior management experience, either as like a tech lead manager, an IC manager kind of thing, or is it an explicit engineering manager? But at the staff level, even as an IC, there's a lot of stakeholder management. There's working with other people. There's all the people skills that are so essential. So yeah, yeah, absolutely. Ideally, you've got someone who has done it all before. They can put their headphones on, disappear for two weeks and come back with this amazing system, but they can also lead a team of 30 and do all of that stuff. And some people grow into that role, but I think in the early days, especially for our company, going from one to 10 engineers, and that's going from no revenue to raising a series A. One, the management burdens, I don't think as hard. There's less organizational prioritization. There's not at Google, you've got to get 100,000 engineers to somewhat effectively work together as part of a larger roadmap. And even at 10 people, you've got 10 people in a room and you got to talk about what you want. There's less management. Yeah. Then the thing that we just see time and time again is that the great engineers want to work for great engineers. Having someone who's a great engineer that other people can look up to helps. 
by and large, no matter what you're doing as a founder, you're going to be busy. There's no, hey, there's nothing to do today, but it's more like, am I working on the most leveraged things? And the thing that we've seen is just for the CTOs most of the time, being heads down building is one of the most leveraged things they can do. Even though you could be busy with planning, which is obviously important, but being a great builder has so many downstream positive effects. The Better Build is brought to you by Mission. Mission is an award-winning network of senior level software engineers and product builders, backed by a platform that helps engineers continue to learn, grow, and connect. To get your team of fully managed, fully remote, and fully flexible software engineers, or to join our community, visit us at mission.dev. Can you recall any big failure in that front? Some people you thought were could grow with the company and actually could not, and why? Yeah, totally. And I, I think there's a few different failure modes. I think that probably the, mo the biggest one that you know, keeps me up at night and I think is the most important is just general ability to empathize with your co-founder and to be able to understand their pain points and not fall into this, not fall into avoidance. I, I think that's a real challenge. And I think that's a challenge that like the non-manager, there's obviously there's a range of skill levels of this, but I think managers are often well-equipped at dealing with interpersonal conflict and us engineers can have sharp elbows at times. And so I, th I think one failure mode is the, just not seeing the, the greater whole of competing interests, competing needs, don't understand each other's perspective. Refreshingly, one of the more common questions I'll get on the CEO side, like these non-technical founders reaching out. And I want to say some of our CEOs are actually technical people. They're the business folks has been like, hey, I don't have any insights into what's happening in engineering, right? My co-founder seems really busy. I don't know when things are going to be delivered, but I also don't want to overstep. I want to trust and respect my co-founder, but I've got these needs to understand things, which I think is a failure mode in that it's not good if you don't understand what your co-founders doing. But approach from a place of empathy, I think. Of, you know, I trust and respect them, but I also need to ask these questions about what's happening. I don't want to overstep. Yeah. So I think there's that level. And then I think the biggest thing I warn our CTOs about, though, in terms of how they can go astray is not to become the, again, call it the stereotypical engineering manager, where at a big company, the engineering manager, there's a product manager that tells them what to build. It's more resourcing prioritization, but the typical engineering manager, and this is a big generalization, but I think the typical engineering manager is less concerned about, am I building the right thing? And more concerned about, am I delivering on my commitments? And so I think it's easier for CTOs to fall into this trap is just not having that deep understanding of your customers. The biggest failure mode is, hey, the non-technical co-founder talks to the customer, or goes and talks to the end, their technical co-founder who goes off and builds it, who gives it back to the non-technical co-founder who goes and gives it to the customers, and then they built the wrong thing, or they didn't realize like a much faster way to build that. And so on the technical founder side, it is just that loss of connection with the customer. And it's hard because of course time is limited. And as we know, building software takes a lot of deep focus where you can't be answering emails and taking phone calls while you're building software. But that's probably the most common struggle. And then I say people like hiring great people. And it's so hard, right? Recently, I think the market's warmed up, but over the past couple of years, it's been a very, very brutally tough hiring market. And just the ability to hire people who are self-motivated, who are bought into the company's vision, as Bezos would say, the missionaries, the people who are going to go and make this thing happen. That's the other thing that's so cute. And it's so easy to fall into the trap of, I just need a body. I'm so exhausted. I just need someone, hire them, deal with it later. But I think with, especially with hiring, what I see is you have two things. One is just on a purely like per dollar spent, you're getting less output than if you'd hired someone really, really good. But also there's the cultural effect. With those early hires, set the bar. And then that next hire is not going to be compared to this ideal bar. It's compared to who you already have. And early on, I picture it as you you set the bar and then you make it lower as slowly as possible. I'm curious how you're passing that feedback to the CTOs that you're working with. So a lot of companies in your portfolio, are you working one-on-one -on -one with the CTOs? How involved are you on a day-to-day -day with kind of what they're building, how they're building their teams? 
how they're managing their teams, what tools they're using, et cetera. Yeah, working very closely with them. One piece of philosophy that we have is I don't want to fall into the role, and nobody at, at Fractal does. We're not their boss. It's their company. It's their journey. And ultimately, as a founder, you're accountable for the decisions that you make, regardless of if I tell you, hey, you should hire this person, you hire that person. If it works out, that impacts you the most. And if it doesn't work out, that also impacts you the most. And so we try to be very careful about as we support our founders is at the end of the day, we're here to help. We're here to support. We're not here to tell them what to do. They own their decisions through and through. Now, that said, we've got a lot of data and we share this data with them and things like that. And so in terms of specific help, everything early days, like if you just uncover the unknown, what's the stuff? No doubt as a technical or non-technical founder, you've come across something you've never done before. Probably hiring is one of the early ones where Many, I think most engineers who've been in the industry for a few years have interviewed, but they haven't run a recruiting pipeline before. Mm -hmm. And so we help them set that up, but also think deeply about what are you looking for? How are you going to get the signal you need to know if this person's going to be successful for you? What does good look like? What profiles are you looking at? How are you interviewing them? How are you even sourcing them? Reach out to them. How do you craft a compelling hook? Help them a lot with like common technologies. At this point, vertical SaaS, right? there's a lot of underlying it's system of record software. Right? Most of our companies are the operating system for Scrap Recycler, the operating system for golf and country clubs, these kind of things. Or even taking a step back, right? Like the, the goal of Fractal is that the vertical software in general is that we can have a very tightly integrated workflow. If you run this kind of business, like we can keep it in one system, data is going to flow nicely between the different parts of it. And then at the edges, we'll do nice integrations. But as you can imagine, there's a lot of commonality here. CRM functionality, inventory management functionality, integrations with QuickBooks. If anyone from QuickBooks is listening to us, please, we love you, but it's tough. You're learning accounting when you do that integration. So some of it's just around typical, here's how you set up infrastructure. And I think the reality is if you've ever worked at a company, unless you've done side projects, you've never gone zero to one. And most people have never gone zero to one on technology. Yeah. So some of it's just around, here's how you set up infrastructure. And I think the reality is if you've ever worked at a company, unless you've done side projects, you've never gone zero to one. Most people have never gone zero to one on technology in a productionalized, has to be up 24 seven continuous deployment sense. There's always been that other microservice at the existing company to copy or the way that you create a service at Google or at whatever company you're at. So helping people get through that zero to one phase is really key, especially in some of our companies are regulated spaces where you need HIPAA compliance for healthcare companies, SOC 2 compliance and, the, and those kind of things. And then a chunk is understanding patterns. So QuickBooks is one where, as an example, the integration, there's QuickBooks desktop, which is a thing that's running on, usually on a server in the back room of the whatever business. But then there's also QuickBooks web, which is a nice cloud application. But the thing that we find is it's super unopinionated. And so... With QuickBooks, for example, uh, it's, it's not that it's got a normal cloud API. They understand their audience is non like developers who have to do, deal with accounting, but the way that you would run your accounting is there's no one way to do accounting. And so equipping people like, hey, get ahead of this, find advisors who are really good at accounting, who can teach you their accounting system so that when you do this integration, you can make the rest calls, no problem. But how do you want to model deprecation and how do your customers expect that? Those kind of things. How far have you pushed that? Is that more about sharing knowledge or sharing best practices? Or have you started to build some specific components that can be shared across the different companies? Yeah, great question. It's something we debate all the time. And so generally we haven't been building stuff in-house in part because of the, just you know, part of the model of Fractal is there, it's me and another engineer there right now that are the support on the technical side. And so to be able to support something that an accounting system or things, that's a real investment that I think there's some merit to that model. And certainly there's other venture studios that do that, but our model has really been equip the companies and then try to share knowledge across them, but let them own the code. Mm -hmm. And then I think another real, a really important piece is we don't necessarily want to create like correlated risk across the portfolio in terms of, yep. let's say I build a crappy accounting system and now it's down mm -hmm. for a week and now every fractal portfolio company is down. We don't want to create that level of dependency. 
No, if AWS is down, that's another story. I, I had the same question as Gabe, a bit different here, and I was wanted to ask at Fractal, are you leveraging the community, hearing something that really works for someone, mm -hmm. someone wants to build it, and you just make the connection between the two of them? Yeah. yeah. And we try to do that like explicitly, like, hey, here's someone in a similar space. And it's not always like, two people in the construction space, but it might be here's someone with a really advanced CRM functionality. And like, here's another company in a different space that has that routing and logistics. There's a number of our companies that have fairly complex routing and logistics needs. Their mapping APIs aren't great, it turns out, other than for taxi driving and building communities like that. And then the other thing on the, on the side is as founders, you guys know this, but it's tough and weird being a founder. And I think as, as our founders have described, it's somewhat isolating. You're in this thing, you're the captain of the ship. You've got investors on one side, you've got employees on another side and your customers and your job's not particularly well-defined. And so we found even on the meta level, just the community side of, hey, it, it is hard. And here's someone who's going through that same experience is so, so key, right? Mm -hmm. Just having someone to vent to when stuff goes wrong and all those things. And so try very deliberately to get founders talking to each other, seeing each other. And it's naturally happened a lot of lately. There's a few WeWorks in New York where there's six, seven of our companies that kind of just happen to end up there. And so these communities have been forming as well, but it's just so important. I think even more so than the knowledge sharing is just the like empathy sharing or like the like shared experience thing. Yeah, yeah, we see something similar for us with Mission and our network of engineers, just providing opportunities for them to get together. You don't really need to give them much direction, just put them in the same room. And that knowledge flows and that support between uh, peers really shines through. So I can imagine that you guys see that as well. Well, they're all super smart, super capable people doing something really hard for the first time, or mostly doing it for the first time, but still mm -hmm. hard even the second time around. We help them with fundraising and all this other business-driven stuff. But I, I do think helping people, the pep talks are important too. Right? Yeah, yeah, it's the emotional support that you need yeah. when you're going through this journey of entrepreneurship. It's, it's extremely important. Totally. Maybe we can jump back a little bit, talk about... Earlier in your career, as I mentioned, you spent a couple of years at Google and then at uh, Lyft as well. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that. I'm curious to hear how that experience working in these more mature companies played out compared to working with such early stage companies where it's really two people. Yeah, I think like, it equipped me really extremely well. And, and so my kind of trajectory from Google, I was working in tech infra, super smart people. Half the team had PhDs. We were building the biggest pub sub, one of the biggest distributed systems in the world. At a scale you couldn't believe. Enormous amounts of giant companies' data would go through. And every time someone clicks something on Google, multiple messages go through the system. As you can imagine, there's a lot of people clicking stuff on various Google websites. So this is the job that taught me to be just a really good software engineer in a world of ultra high precision on a really complex problem of real distributed system stuff, of distributed consensus, and very much with not me specifically, but Google inventing this as they go, figuring out how do we get these two machines to talk to each other from across the world and agree on the state of something. Between Lyft and Google, though, I went to this startup, and this is really where the engineering leadership took off, is I, I joined this Series C startup called Namely, which is HR payroll benefits tech as a principal engineer. And a lot of the job was, I think there were, when I joined about 50, 60 engineers at the company, trying to scale up a standard product of a high growth company. You hit technical debt and you run into problems as your product gets more complex of so make it more predictable and normal stuff. But a lot, my job was to help the organization ship and very undefined, set the technical direction for the org with, with other people. And the really cool thing that this taught me I got a really crash course in is influencing without authority, being able to get buy-in for technical direction and all the way from like senior leadership, my boss, the CTO, my peers, the other engineering directors at the company, and then within the individual teams, being able to actually make stuff happen ac across the org. Because 
top-down direction only works so well, especially at a bigger company. And if people aren't bought in or understanding what's going on, it's tough. So a lot of it was trying to be hands-on. And my playbook in the beginning was just embed myself with a team that's doing something important, get them back to shipping on time, and then extract myself from that to go on to the next thing. And ideally keep that initial team running at the same pace as, as when I was there. First, I just figured this out organically. I'm like, I don't know how to do this. What's the most important thing? I'll just superhero it myself. And then very quickly realized, well, that's not sustainable. And so learned about, okay, let's work with more senior engineers on the team, help them take control of whatever, whatever challenges or things like that, and help them own it so that when I step away, they feel as they should, they feel the ownership over it and they're able to continue it on. And then I had a very similar role at Lyft. So from there at Lyft, I was working on bikes and scooters, so city bike, bay wheels, awesome group. Lyft itself is a very mission-driven company, but like bikes and scooters is the, the city urbanist extremists within uh, Lyft. Love public transit, love biking and all that kind of stuff. Wanted cities without cars. It was the unofficial view of bikes and scooters. We'd acquired this company Motivate and uh, we as in Lyft acquired this company Motivate that started city bike and bay wheels and all these things and trying to you know, integrate it with our existing systems. Mm-hmm. How, and, how big of a team were you at that time? Lyft is about the same. It was about 50 or 60 in bikes and scooters. Like Lyft itself had a couple thousand people. Okay, but within that team, you were about 50. Okay. Yeah. We had a, at bikes and scooters, there's a hardware engineering side. There's industrial engineering of designing the bikes. There's mm-hmm. the firmware engineering that is writing the code that talks to the motor controller and the battery and things like that. And so that was another, I actually don't know how large that section was, but on the actual cloud software side, it was about 50 people. And then of course we've got an analytics team. I always say bikes and scooters as a whole was maybe 150, 200 total, including marketing and things like that, but I could be off. But very similar, it was me and this principal engineer reporting to the VP of engineering. So the rest of the software team reported to this engineering director. And our job was to be the glue, make this whole system work while doing this kind of gnarly integration with the existing software. Bikes and scooters is just a fascinating spot. There's computers that run on the actual stations. There's computers that run on the bikes. There's these on-premise, the legacy system is these on-premise servers that are, and we were trying to reconcile that, making a cohesive experience in the Lyft app. And similar thing of not having a single mandate of one team, it's broadly how do you have impact and learning to discover impact and then influence people. And so mm-hmm. that was hugely important, especially in coming to Fractal. I'm influencing people and having to do it at founders. They're very motivated to succeed, but they're very busy. And tr- so trying to shape and be a thought partner with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, Were there any practices that you felt you picked up from the bigger orgs that you tried to implement with two per- two person startup that totally fell flat? Yeah, oh, totally. I, I think one is the right level of planning in a startup. At a big company like Lyft, there's a multi-year roadmap. And then, of course, it breaks down and the further you get out, it's fuzzier. And I'm sure that even at the executive level, there's a decade-long roadmap of where they want to be. At startups, like, I wouldn't say this is just something that fell flat, but I think one of the things that's a struggle is, especially in the early days of a startup, at first you have no customers. And even if you have like three or four customers, there's not that baseline metric that you can drive. It's a lot more like free experimentation. You can say, if you take Scrapiers again, and this company's doing really well, it's clear that running like on seven different Excel spreadsheets is suboptimal and there's paper ticketing systems at some of them and all this kind of stuff. Can you turn that into software that solves the problem so is an open question. And so I think like the right level of planning is very different at a big startup versus a small startup. Where do you code the technical leaders to land in terms of building MVPs for scale versus throwaway? Is there an expectation that the first version is going to be scrapped? Yes and no. Certainly there's going to be a lot of dealing with tech debt. So on one hand, like likely, yes, you're going to build it and throw it away. I think building with the intent of throwing it away, though, can lead to too many cut corners. Other than obviously you should be doing prototypes and, and things like that. Generally, as companies get bigger, I try to discourage them from doing major rewrites versus take a slice spin it off into a microservice or just refactor that piece of your infrastructure. I think the reality is that, especially in the new VC market, the demand for sales and growth is so high to be a successful company that 
taking six months to do a rewrite that has a risk that it could take longer. It's not usually viable. And so when you've got outage, how do you quarantine off the dangerous section of the code or the piece that's breaking? And how do you at least stop it from breaking? And if not, very deliberately replace that one piece. Similarly, we've had companies that experimented with no code tools like retool and things like that. And I, I think they're good tools, but generally people have said it's been a bit of a wash where they, for backend customer onboarding and support and stuff like that has been really useful, but for actually quickly turning out a prototype, it's hit the limits of it relatively quickly. And then it reduces momentum and excitement as they have to go back and rebuild all this stuff again. Okay. And so you'll definitely rewrite big chunks of the system, but never mm. build it once and then spend a year sometime later to do yeah. a whole rewrite. I think as a product person, I've always been biased to try to build an MVP with a no code solution and kind of flush out all of the workflows and the edge cases and real use for it versus going and doing a first build from the start. Is that part of the process that your innovation team does? Do they actually sit with people that work at a scrapyard or a golf course and understand how they've been dealing with the the problem without software? Yeah, totally. I, mean, I don't know if they go and quite sit with the uh, scrapyard people, but a lot of expert network calls, a lot of analysis with, you know, what we'll call, call all sorts of people, scrapyard owners, people on the ground, because the owner doesn't always have the same perspective. So you may own a scrapyard and never step foot in it versus the person who's the day-to-day -day manager of yeah. that scrapyard. So we do tons of expert calls and sitting with people in that industry and adjacent industries because part of the, the vertical SaaS play is understanding the supply chain. It's not just like scrapyards, but who's buying scrapyard services? What services do, do scrapyards buy at the long-term place? How do we integrate all? So we spend a lot of time there, but even then our research gets to the point of the market need, trying to suss out demand. Are people happy with their existing solution? In the restaurant space, for example, people love toast. And so it's no doubt there's a lot of innovation in the restaurant space, but it's hyper-competitive and people love the incumbent software. So it's not a space that you'd want to go in two eyes open if you went into that. Whereas in the most extreme, we have verticals where the person's annoyed that it's not a sales call. Like, oh, you're not going to solve this problem for me? What are you wasting my time? I'm sure you saw that also in your experience targeting this type of business that sometime our family business. As a uh, business person, you see an opportunity to just replace uh, the middleman when those businesses don't want. They still want to work with someone. Yeah, I'm sure you saw that. Oh, for sure. For sure. And I think that there's a real good point about understanding needs and understanding like what is top of mind for those people. In one industry, some of the value may be just dollars and cents. Here's where you're wasting money. We can save you money by optimizing this workflow. Other times though, sales is people in industries are worried about secession planning and how do we make sure that I'm retiring in the next five years and how do I make sure that my kids are well equipped to take on the family business? Yeah. But the original founders often start before computers were a thing. And now they're trying to set their kids up for success. And so huge, huge range, huge range of things there. And Stefan and I were at a conference a week ago where AJ Agarwal from the University of Toronto was doing a talk about AI and the progression and implementation and adoption is probably the right word of AI. And he was using electricity, the invention of electricity as a parallel to how quickly technology can get assimilated into industry. And the reality is a lot of companies have made massive investments and have a lot of legacy that is in place. And so usually while new solutions might be much better than what exists, there's a lot of other factors that tie in. He had talked yeah. a lot about how incumbents are usually less responsive to disrupting existing investment infrastructure that's in place. And you think about big banks, for example, we all know if we could kind of wipe the slate clean, there's better ways to build 
the core of banking, but they would never do it because they've invested so much in it. You guys found that as well, where in whatever vertical that you're going after, the existing players are happy with what they're doing, but there are new entrepreneurs that are starting new businesses that don't have that legacy and can come in with a better solution. It depends. We see both extremes. Mm -hmm. We definitely see times where people are running their business, say, on a number of Excel spreadsheets or even on some legacy system. It's been customized over years to be exactly their need. But also these guys can tend to be the bigger players. They've been doing this for 30, 40 years. They may not be a giant company at this point, but they're not 10 people. Mm -hmm. So that's definitely a certain case of like, we do things the way we like, and there's so much risk. It's so tied into all the things we do in the business. There's a lot of risk to ripping it out and replacing it. Um, not to say that it can't be sold, but the bar for them is a lot higher. And then we also see the other extreme where people like just absolutely hate their software. They'll buy your software on a promise of just not being what you currently use. <laughs> yeah. um, and mo most people, that's the place you want to be selling for sure. Yeah. Um, most people in the middle, one of the big things we really encourage our, our companies to do in broad stroke, right? there's obviously exceptions, is find that niche within the niche. If you're going after golf and country clubs, it may not, the giant golf and country club with six locations and tens of millions of dollars of revenue may not be your first customer. And that's okay. But if you can find the people who are, say, they've opened a country club in the past five years, finding that specific niche mm -hmm. to get your first five, 10, 20 selling opportunities and get really good at understanding what are the commonalities, common pain points, that's been really key. And then there's not a clearly right answer. Sales is hard no matter what. And if sales is easy, raise your prices. But typically sales is really, really hard. So there's a level you have to push through. Don't try to land that giant enterprise deal as your first customer because mm -hmm. there's just no point yet. There's other ones to go after. And just being clear on where you think you can add a lot of value relatively quickly has been super key. Yeah, but based on that, actually, I have a question. From what I understood, Fractal is sourcing both the CEO and the CTO, right? That's right. How much do you think it's important that someone is passionate about the fact to solve a big problem for him, a big problem from his expertise or or experience. I can take my, my own experience. I built mission because this is, this is industry I know pretty well, and I really wanted to solve something in that industry. How do you assess the passion or the future passion of the co-founder for a specific vertical? Yeah. And so some of it is their own self-selection to give a little bit more into how we recruit. It's not so much just, like, Hey, you, here's an idea, go start a company. It's founders meet each other. We had a pool. We're launching several companies a month. And founders would meet a co-founder you like, find an idea that you both like out of a pool of ideas. So there's a level of self-selection. Who do you want? Which one do you want? One of our companies does machine shops and his parents own a machine shop. And it was just like this obvious, oh my gosh, this makes a ton of sense. I think a lot of times it's new industries that people hadn't heard of before, but become passionate over time. What they've been passionate about is building a good business, understanding their customers, that they're in this space that they may not have known about before. It seems less important, given that they're willing to lean into it. And I do think that a lot of times there's this level of, I'm trying to think of a good example of a company. If you think of Golf and Country Clubs, for example, as a really cool company, they're called Woosh. They make really cool software. I don't know that either of the founders was in a country club. I may be wrong, but I think you, you meet people, you learn about the problems. It becomes interesting as you, you learn to fall in love with the industry. And to me, that's been the more important one. Someone who's just willing to lean in and empathize with their customers who are often from very different backgrounds. In terms of how we assess that, it's, it's been you know, through interviews, through our interactions with them, our, our recruiting process was, was a standard suite of interviews, but also take founders out for dinner and things like that, right? Make sure that, see how excited they are about these things. So it's looking at that continuously throughout our process for level of drive and conviction. And just generally, I think empathy is the key, the key across yeah. everything. I know we just discussed this in the past. I think empathy is key, but for me, it's curiosity. Remember, I was telling you to me the, the most important trait and actually the, yeah. the 
the best people I are in my life are all of all these common traits, which is they are curious by nature, right? Right. Even if you don't know an industry and they, if they see a big problem, they're going to become genuinely curious and interested about this problem, right? And right. they're going to solve it. Is that what you see too? Oh, for sure. For sure. Because I think one of the keys I like, I'd forgotten that, but I think you're asking the two sides of the same coin. I've certainly fallen into this trap of conflating technical complexity or interest with actual value to the business. And the people who have done the best have been the ones who can go in and be like, it's as if I'm sitting in that chair running that scrapyard. And I understand here's all the stressors. And some of those are going to be business stresses. Some of those are going to be like, hey, here's this thing I have to run once a month. And it takes so many hours, but the other side of understanding that that person wants to get home and see their family and they have to stay late two nights a month and becomes part of the pitch. A lot of these tech founders are never going to work in a a scrapyard. Being able to put yourself in the shoes of the person who's running that scrapyard, be interested in their life, I guess. I guess that is the curiosity. It's it's so important. They're very intertwined. Definitely. Personally, I, I reflect on the startups that I've worked at. Some I had a personal interest in, and that's what kind of attracted me to the business, but others... I think because of curiosity and empathy, I just started to really be attracted to the impact that we were having for the end user. And that becomes the driver and the motivation as you just see it. And it snowballs. You're seeing that you're helping people and that's exciting and can pull you forward. For example, my previous startup before mission was bus.com. I would have never guessed in a million years that I would be working for a bus startup. I wasn't attracted to buses in any ways. One of the founders of bus.com was from a very early age, and that was part of his story and narrative uh, related to the startup. But personally, it was getting exposed to the stories about the people, the communities that we were helping by providing the service that we created. And I, I think that's, that's through empathy and curiosity. Like you said, it's two sides to the same coin. And it's also been neat to see the one thing that's given me appreci- appreciation for is just how different people's interests are. We had this one company that was, and I forget the space, it was basically software for a specific type of accountant. Mm-hmm. And you're building in-depth accounting software, which is you know, personally not my idea of fun. And we were having a really hard time finding a founder for this, right? Someone who wanted to go and build accounting software, a very valuable business and clear problems. It's tough. And then we had this one guy who I think did like an accounting double degree or an accounting minor. And his parents were accountants and he just loved this, but he went into computer science and it was always this, I like computer science, but I always wish I got to work on accounting stuff. And I forget if he ended up launching the company with it, but it was the kind of thing of sends us an email excitedly at 10 PM saying, I need this idea. I just wanted to get this out before anyone else claimed it. Meanwhile, we couldn't get anyone to look at this for several months. And this was the best thing in the world to them. It's really neat to see that. Maybe just to, to touch on the last time we saw each other, we were hanging out in New York City. You brought us to a really great spot on the top of, I can't remember what building with an amazing view. So thank yeah. you for that. You remember the name of the, the building we were at? Oh my it gosh. Was, it was the Skylark. 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 Exactly. Yeah. So beautiful spot. Really enjoyed it. Can you talk a little bit about New York City? I know you didn't grow up in New York, but you moved to New York City. How has the New York tech scene evolved? Do you feel like now more so than ever? You can build startups from anywhere in North America or the world. What's your perspective as a New Yorker? Yeah, yeah. I've been here 13 years, years and change. Yeah, I love New York on, on many different levels. And I, and I think every time I go to San Francisco, I was in San Francisco last week. San Francisco's on a different level. I walked in, I went out to a cafe for lunch. And in one corner, there's a guy who's clearly talking to a VC on the phone. There's another person standing in line scrolling through like GitHub issues. You know, everyone has some random tech startup shirt on. It felt like a scene out of Silicon Valley. It was like, was in Silicon Valley. 
That's not New York. That said, our companies here haven't had trouble attracting great talent. Google's got a big office here. Facebook's got a big office here. LinkedIn's got a big office here. There's enough density of talent. I think that it's probably harder than San Francisco to find people, but by no means impossible. I'm definitely biased by this. Building a company in New York makes a ton of sense. So Uh, the companies that you're building mm -hmm. and investing in, do they have to be based out of New York or are you investing in entrepreneurs? Oh, yeah. Spread out? We require them to be in the U.S., Okay. A lot of it just from financing governance laws, as far mm. as I understand, being able to deal with equity and stuff like that. But beyond that, people can be anywhere. I'd say it's probably 60 or 50, 40, 10, New York, San Francisco, and then other, where people have okay. got pretty much any major city, we've got at least one founder. in. Generally, SF and New York are the two main ones. So Fractal is headquartered in New York. And so that's where the bias came from. And would you say relative to 10 years ago, the founders who are in that 10%, those cities outside of San Francisco and New York, or even in New York, have an easier time to attract talent or to even raise VC? Uh, Yeah. So I think in terms of VC, especially with COVID over the past few years, location hasn't mattered as much. Now, I I definitely get the sense that that's starting to change. Some VCs are being much more like we want people in SF in the office kind of thing. In terms of our companies, it doesn't jump to mind. I think small enough sample size, though, that it's hard to say, is there a trend there? I think the definite risk is uh, often those companies end up being remote. It's, It's very hard to hire a team in Denver, for example. Certainly there are good engineers there, but to build out a team. Pros and cons. The biggest thing that I worry about with founders being separate is just how well are they going to work together? I think there's a level of being in a room together and especially as co-founders, just being able to get through challenging situations. And the worry that I have is that if someone's just on the other end of Zoom, it can become adversarial. Now, that said, the remote founders, I think, are also very aware of this and so often travel and often see each other and that kind of thing. I don't know if I have enough data to make a call either way. They're certainly not overperforming by a noticeable amount. They're also not underperforming by a a noticeable amount. Yeah. I would definitely agree. It's helpful to have the founding team in the same city. So Stefan and I are on separate Zoom calls, but we're in the same office building. So it's two doors down. It's definitely getting together and having an opportunity to discuss things in person definitely changes the game. We're big believers in that. But it's nice to hear that there are companies being built all over America and are navigating the realities of raising and scaling. Totally. And they're hiring teams all over the world, right? I, I think a lot of success in you know, hiring people in India, Bangladesh, in Asia, challenge, of course, is time zones get hard. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, a lot of success hiring developers in Canada, South America. Our companies that have done that well have absolutely been able to moneyball it. You can even get this amazingly talented engineer for quite cheap. Mm-hmm. Uh, it definitely comes with a management burden. We, we see on the remote teams, it's I think the way I framed it is it's easy. A bunch of stuff you get for free by having people in the same office together. The level of camaraderie, a level of communication, um, mm-hmm. especially when it's a small team of three, five people. I think the teams that have done it really well, though, who are able to access global talent and then are able to deal with the extra management burden of that talent. Some of it just comes on better written communication, better coordination and planning in cases where there's big time zone difference, better ability to equip a team that's working with a 12-hour offset to unblock themselves so that it's not not, 10 a.m. they get blocked on something. Now you lose that day. Yeah. As you can imagine, we're definitely biased to that model. And our team is spread, our engineering team, we use the mission model to build our own software. And so our team's spread out all over the world. And we see a lot of benefits for sure in terms of operating that way. You definitely get access to a larger talent pool. And then, like you said, you can also get access to talent that has a lower cost of living in other parts of the world that you can support really well, and they can definitely drive a lot of impact. So 
we're big fans. Yeah. And where it's worked out is some people have gotten some just incredible, incredible engineers, especially I've got advice Brazil. It's been an awesome, mm-hmm. awesome place to, to hire from. Yeah. I think the first time I started working with remote engineers probably was 15 years ago. And I think a lot of us in the industry that have uh, been at it for a while tested the waters uh, in the 90s. And it definitely was a different story than it is today. The quality of the engineers, the level of communication, everybody is using the same tools, understands the same methodologies. So we really see no difference between an engineer in North America, even an engineer in San Francisco and an engineer in whatever country. So we all say the world is flat, but it just feels like it's getting flatter and flatter. Yeah. Oh, totally. For sure. And we even had one of our teams who hired a team out of Bangladesh. They did their offsite in Bangladesh. Like they they went, oh, out, went to Dhaka and just got back and it sounds a life-changing experience. Like they sound, sound like they all had a blast. It was fun during COVID in many ways, my world got smaller because I was just like in my condo and then around right. my, a couple of blocks around my place. But virtually my world opened up. That was when I really started to work with engineers and product people and people in our community all over the world. And it was just like, wow, it's really fun to be able to get exposed to the different cultures. One fun thing that we do, and it's something we've instituted across the different teams that are working within Mission, we make sure, we definitely recommend that people spend time getting together, not just to talk about work, but to socialize as well. And one fun tip is taking a moment and let people from different countries use Google Maps and give a tour of their neighborhood or their country. And it's so amazing to get a perspective from a local in terms of and seeing where they grew up and where they live and some cool places to visit because people are proud of their cities and proud of their countries and people just light up when they're showing you around their country. And so it's a fun exercise to do with a remote team. Oh, I love that. That's such a good idea. Yeah. And then especially street view in a lot of places. Yeah. You can yeah, actually yeah. Like see the buildings. That's yeah. a great tip. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Yeah, I just want to have your opinion on something. We've been extremely bullish on the remote work, as you can imagine. We are a remote first company and we've been there since 2017, so way before COVID. So we believe in work distribution fundamentally <laughs> and by default. I've been working with people outside of the country for now 15 years. But even that, the only thing that I think I honestly... I don't think we nailed it as a company, a remote company, and we're still doing it the old-fashioned way in a room is everything related to product, product session, product brainstorm. It only takes one, two, three days to solve major problem related to our product when we are everyone in a room, including our product owners, CTO, our product designer. It's so fast to be all together discussing the product on many different dimensions, including the business, everything. You could not manage to do that uh, remotely. And this is something every three months, we have all the team together in a room for two, three days, just talking about the product. Have you seen that too on your end? Yeah, well, for sure. And it's also kind of weird. COVID was not everything remote, but it was panic remote. There was structure and processes and stuff weren't put in place. Even personally, I'd worked at Lyft, I think for six months before COVID happened, then we all went to work from home. And it was really interesting. When I was hands, heads down executing, it was great because I was writing code. Nobody was interrupting me and I could go walk around and then come back. And it was just way more productive. And I'd find it'd be 3 p.m. And I'd be like, I've done everything I need to do today. That's wild. What's happened? 
and go get the next project. The flip side though, of course, is that when I had to discover work, I found it really, really hard because it's a lot of unstructured conversation. I think there's probably some of the stuff with product ideation is that it's not just ABC. It's let's throw ideas at the wall and let's revisit something from before. And I also think that too, it's the 30 minute meeting, it's the 60 minute meeting versus the four hours, including taking a coffee break together. That's very, very hard to replicate in a remote world. But then I think remote doesn't have to be like, it's not, I've seen each other every day or never see each other in person. Having those sessions is key. The solution has been to travel and meet each other and really talk and have these like bigger unstructured conversations. We just did this as Fractal last week in San Francisco. And it was again a one day session talking about two or three prompts and extremely productive, even though we spend hours together every every day over Mm -hmm. Zoom. There's something completely unpredictable when it comes to creativity in general. You never know when the best idea is going to come up. Maybe I'm getting kind of conspiracy theory, but you're standing, you're walking around in a way that you're not in a Zoom call. So maybe this will be the Apple Vision Pro will unlock everything. Every, yeah. every mean, problem is a technical we, solution. Yeah. We definitely shipped a lot of product during the pandemic. So I think it's possible to design, yeah. build software, but I, I do agree that it, it uh, feels more human and it's more fun. And I think more creative ideas come when you can get people in the same space. I, I remember vividly all of the companies I've worked at and remembering that moment you're talking about where you stop the whiteboarding session and you go get a coffee. And it's around the coffee pot is where everybody starts jamming and talking about different things. And so you need those moments of unstructured as well as structured. It might be able to be recreated online, but it's more difficult for sure. You need to be very conscious about it, which maybe in some ways defeats the the purpose of being organic and unstructured. Yeah. And I I don't know what the answer is. I I think the answer may be you find ways to bring people together. Our companies, I think, are too small for this, but larger companies will have a hub. Here's a shared mm-hmm. meeting space that you can use to to do these things ad hoc, maybe not as a whole company, but as the people living in New York or whatever place. Yeah. I think in those cases, it's once a quarter, we'll pay for a couple nights of a hotel so you can travel into the city and meet up, and that can work out pretty well. To me, it's the time. The thing I keep coming back to is all of my interactions are 30 minutes or an hour. To me, at that point, you're just warming up. Sometimes that makes sense, but time's limited, but just having these larger unstructured sessions where yeah, yeah. perhaps there's a broad goal. It's how you get there. It's up in the air. Let's yeah. brainstorm this thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, don't I completely agree. Even for this podcast, right? we typically have an hour booked, but we see as the hour progresses, people get much more natural and the conversation starts to flow right. better. And I guess it's Rogan who does like a four hour podcast. Yeah. There's a reason I think for it, you just start to relax a little bit more and forget that the camera's on and you start to build more of a dynamic. Unfortunately here, we're running out of sunshine since it's November up in the Northeast, but totally, I can see my lighting's getting a little bit dark. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Good. So uh, I think we can probably wrap there. Good conversation. Definitely appreciate the perspective, Martin. Yeah, yeah, likewise. Was, Thank you for having me. This is a joy. No, that was great. People who are going to listen to this podcast, I'm sure they're going to be super excited to work uh, for Fractal eventually. How do they do, actually? And anyone? Oh, yeah. Just look me up on LinkedIn, probably. That's my only social media presence. It's just Martin Kess, K-E-S-S, at, on LinkedIn. Send out a connection request. You can reach me, martin at fractalsoftware.com. Always happy to hop on a call, talk about this stuff. We are looking for all sorts of people. We're looking for people who want to work at early startups. And that's everything from you want to be a founding engineer to 
you want to be the first head of sales to you want to be a VP of operations at some of these later stage companies that are starting to grow and get these specialized roles. Obviously, our companies, we've got a good network of investors. If you go to fractalsoftware.com, you can uh, sign up for a mailing list. We try to talk about vertical SaaS and what we're seeing with things like AI, hiring, fundraising trends, all sorts of stuff. I feel like we've got our finger on the pulse pretty well. That's all our head of marketing, Graydon, is the mastermind behind all of those things. But yeah, reach out. Always happy to chat. Awesome. Awesome. So thank you much, Martin. Was great. Thank you. Yeah. And I hope I'll see you guys again soon. We'd like to thank our guest for joining us today. For all of you for tuning in, be sure to subscribe to this podcast on your preferred listening service. Stay connected with us on LinkedIn and visit our website, mission.dev, for more information on our network and platform. See you next episode.